Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode of the Full Bloom Podcast is brought to you by our forthcoming Body Image Group for Parents, which we're excited to announce will begin on October 21st, 2019. This group will meet virtually on Monday evenings for six weeks, and it's designed for parents who want extra support working through their own body image concerns. So often we hear from our guests that kids are watching and learning from their parents. So parents need to start body positive parenting by looking at themselves. A lot of parents may feel like their own struggles with their body or food hold them back from being the best possible role models for their kids. If that sounds like you, this group is an amazing opportunity to get support in overcoming insecurity, body shame, and a troubled relationship with food. So you can help your kids do the same. Spots are limited to make sure it's meaningful for everyone who participates. So let us know if you're interested at fullbloomproject.com slash course. Again, you can learn more or sign up for the group at fullbloomproject.com slash course. And a quick reminder before we get started that this podcast is for general information and education purposes only and is not intended for and shouldn't replace advice from a medical or mental health professional. Welcome back to the Full Bloom Podcast. This is episode number 35. This week, we're talking to Andrea Wachter, who's a licensed marriage and family therapist, author, and speaker. We heard about Andrea after reading a review of her book, Getting Over Overeating for Teens. And after learning more about her work, we thought she would be a wonderful podcast guest. Like us, she's passionate about helping others heal from food and body image issues and fighting body dissatisfaction particularly excited to have Andrea because she writes about these issues in her books in very kid-friendly ways. So we're hoping that today when we discuss what she calls the negative body image epidemic, you'll be able to walk away with just some new terminology even to use with your kids. We'll be discussing what she's learned in her own practice and how to integrate emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual work and how parents can support young children and teens who may or may not be struggling with body image uh, or have a troubled relationship with food, but she's into prevention too. So we were thrilled that she can join us today. Andrea, welcome to the Full Bloom Podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So we're, we're delighted you're here, and we'd love for you to just start by telling our audience a bit about yourself and also what inspired you to write these wonderful books for teens and young children. Absolutely. Well, what inspired me was my own history with an eating disorder, and that led me to become really passionate about helping others. My body and food issues started, as it does for many people, when I was young and I got teased about the size of my body. I refer to that as a dart in the heart moment. Mm -hmm. And I know someone else might have gotten the same exact comment and taken it differently than the way I did, 
but combine a sensitive, perfectionistic personality with a body criticism, and there off I went to a mm. budding eating disorder. So what I did was what many people do. I started a diet. And that was easy enough to do because my mom and sister were already dieting at that time. And I just hopped on what I call the diet riot roller coaster. And it would be decades before I'd learn how to get off of that. And like many people, I started innocently dieting and that led to sneak eating and that led to binging and then extreme dieting and extreme binging. And uh, that eventually led to really severe bulimia which I had for a long time. And eventually when I got help, I began to learn what was really going on and what was really causing it and what I really needed. And as I began to heal, it just became so clear to me that I wanted to help others. So that was about 30 years ago. And I went back to school for my master's and the journey began. And you write about our negative body image epidemic, and we want you to tell our listeners what you mean by this and why prevention is so essential. What I mean by that is we are surrounded by such unhealthy and unrealistic messages about body image and eating, and this has led to an epidemic of adults and kids who just spend massive amounts of time lost in body and food obsession. And it's such an epidemic that it's actually unusual for me to meet someone who's not affected. On, on very rare occasions, I'll be doing an intake with a new client and I'll ask, as I always do, you know, what's your relationship like with food and body image and drugs and alcohol? And on very rare occasions, someone will tell me, they eat all food groups, they don't have any issues with food or their body, they're comfortable in their body. And I think, you know, where, who raised you? Where were you raised? Who are you? How did you not get affected by this? <laughs> so it's more common that people are walking around self-conscious, having food groups and, you know, good or bad, and feeling uncomfortable in their bodies. So we really do have an epidemic on our hands and it doesn't have an age limit anymore. Mm -hmm. We totally agree. I think it's very fair to call it an epidemic. We have considered ourselves in many ways a prevention initiative and a prevention resource. Just love to hear from you. Like, why do you feel like a prevention is so essential? Well, I just think, first of all, issues like this usually escalate. If they're untreated, they usually get worse over time. And so it's much easier to heal something if you intervene at the earlier stages before it gets so ingrained and so habitual that it's kind of embedded in someone's thinking and their behaviors that they've been doing them for years and decades. So to try to nip it in the bud when you when you have a kid or a teen, it's still hard because they're living in the culture, they're surrounded, and they're still hypnotized, likely, but it can be so much more um, effective to help someone at the earlier stages. It's like get helping someone when they first start experimenting with drugs and alcohol instead of waiting till they're full-blown addicted and dependent. Yeah, mm -hmm. I like yeah. that analogy. Yeah. So we have listeners who are parents or providers or both um, with young children and with teens, and we would love to hear from you what strategies you've found are most useful for prevention at both ages. 
So let's start with the young children. You you talk about this I feel fat spell. And what is that? And what do you think helps young children break that spell? Okay, well, let's see. Um, There are many aspects of helping kids break the I feel fat spell. But I'd say the main thing is helping them understand that they are not their thoughts and that the bad body image thoughts have been cast upon them like a spell. So in the book, Mirror, Mirror, we essentially teach mindfulness in a very kid-friendly language. We really try to help kids learn the difference between thoughts and reality. So we help readers and kids see that their thoughts are not actually real. They can't pull them out of their head. They can't fold them up and put them in their pockets. They can't show them to anybody. They can't see their thoughts with their eyes. And even though our thoughts feel very real, they're not real. So we might ask a a child or a reader to look around and listen and see what is actually real. What can they touch? What can they hear? What can they feel with their hands? And essentially, teaching them mindfulness, but in a language they can understand. So that's one one aspect. Um, We use terms like uh, dog talk and cat chat, things like that that are very child-friendly to help kids look at how do they talk to their pets, how Mm. lovingly and kindly they talk to their pets, and how cruel they're talking to themselves and their own bodies. So that's another um, tool that we teach, or spell breaker. Each chapter we call a spell breaker. Um, We tell a story in the book called The Mirror Witch Tale. And this takes them to a land where children are all the same internally, but they're all various shapes and sizes, and they're all born free. They're playing, they're resting, they're moving, they're learning, they're eating, they're sleeping. And then one day some of the kids get cast with this spell, with this I feel fat spell, and they lose their joy and they start to hate their bodies while other kids don't get affected. They're still playing and learning and eating like they always did. So we ask the readers and the kids to to take guesses about why some of the kids get struck by the spell and others don't. And we help them build their inner strength so that they don't have to take on the spell. So that's a little a little taste of, of helping kids break the spell. Mm-hmm. I actually really love that. It's uh, And I, I think it's going to be a very popular giveaway on our Instagram <laughs> when we offer Mirror Mirror. Great. Um, let's move on to teens. Uh, okay. Why did you choose to address overeating in your book? And I'm asking in part because I really would love for you to talk specifically about why addressing this overeating is about much more than just making sure teens don't eat, quote, too much. Oh, absolutely. In my teen book, the least amount of chapters is about food. (laughs) Um, Let's see. I feel like the reason I addressed overeating was because I pretty much had a PhD in overeating by the time I was a teenager. And I also find that people tend to be more drawn to learn how to stop overeating than they are to learn how to make peace with their bodies or stop undereating. So I find that's usually a hook because people don't generally come to me and want to learn how to stop undereating or accept their bodies because those are what gets them feeling in control and sadly what gets them praised in our culture. 
But most people who struggle with overeating find it to be extremely painful and they tend to be more open to help with that pattern. But even though the book is titled Getting Over Overeating, it's all about the ineffectiveness of dieting. It's all about uh, healing body image. It's all about helping with thoughts and feelings and spirit and spirituality and so many other things that, that are underneath an overeating problem. So let's talk about specifically the what you kind of define as the four key areas for helping teens who are struggling with body image and their relationship with food and the kinds of exercises that help teens build stronger coping mechanisms. So can you start by, you know, talking with us about your ideas and and the first idea that you need to address feelings first? Absolutely. So in the book, in the teen book, I talk about a four-legged table. I call it a stable table. And that in order, if we have a four-legged table, in order to have all four legs be strong and have the table be sturdy and stable, we need to strengthen all four legs. So in the case of helping someone get over overeating, the four legs or areas that I cover are emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual. I don't use the word spiritual with teens, but I I use more teen-friendly language, but I cover those areas throughout the book. So feelings, thoughts, body, and spirit. And Just like if somebody goes on a diet and they just address the physical by doing what the culture tells us, which is basically eat less and exercise more, but they don't address the ineffectiveness of diets or their feelings that they're eating over or the thoughts that their mind is telling them all day long or other ways to fill up in their lives, then they're not likely to heal. Or if somebody even goes to therapy and they work on their feelings and talking about their feelings, but they don't work on their thinking and they don't work on healing their relationship with eating and food, then they're not likely to heal. So I really stress all four areas that need to be dealt with and healed as we go through the book and over time. And let's talk about each leg. Could you talk about each leg in a little bit in more depth? Sure. So the leg of feelings, let's say, learning how feelings are not good or bad, just like foods are not good or bad, and that how to deal with what you feel. I'm big on rhyming, so (laughs) how to heal and deal with what you feel is is a chapter. Um, Learning how to, what to do with our feelings when we have them, how not to stuff them down, how to express them safely, how to tolerate them, how to talk to ourselves when we're having big feelings. So those are some you know, concepts in the feeling chapters. And in the mental, I talk about having an unkind mind and how we need to upgrade our unkind mind. And similarly to what I said earlier with the kids book, how not to believe every thought that pops up in the, on the screen of our mind and how to challenge our unkind thoughts and how to, be, how, how to have a quiet mind at times. I teach the teens in the book about three different mind moods that I call unkind mind, kind mind, and quiet mind. So how we can stay on the lookout for unkind mind, which is kind of like your inner critic, and have them really become aware of the way they're talking to themselves and how they would never talk to their friends that way. They wouldn't have friends if they talked to their friends that way. And how the unkind mind and our negative thoughts often lead to overeating, whether that's for soothing or distraction 
or trying to get a break from it or to confirm the thoughts. You know, if I hate myself, I'm such a loser, I might as well eat. So um, really helping them look at the way they're talking to themselves. So that's a little bit about feelings, a little bit about mind or thoughts. And the physical chapters, the physical aspect of the stable table, I talk about, again, the ineffectiveness of dieting and how to go from dieting, restricting, or even thinking you should be dieting, even if you're not. I say whether you're dieting in mentality or reality, it's still going to affect that we're going to want to rebel and break out of those rules. So looking at diet mentality, looking at the inner overeater, and then finding this other place, whether you call it intuitive eating or wise mind eating or the part of them, how they would feed someone else that they love and trying to help them get to know this wise, loving part of themselves and how they would have kind of the biggest do-over with themselves with their relationship with eating. And similar to body, how to find their natural weight range and how to work with, I call it an improvement on movement, how to go from, you know, I should exercise, I should burn calories or the opposite extreme, I'm not moving, I'm not getting off the couch with my screens to how does my body want to move? If I wasn't hating my body, how does my body want to rest? And so, uh, again, more kind, loving tuning into their bodies. So that's a little bit, some of the body chapters. And then the spiritual aspect of the fourth leg, spiritual, I use a term I call uh, filling up without feeling down because a lot of teens might not go for the, the word spiritual or the concept spiritual. They sometimes think it's religion. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I just, you know, I just talk about filling up and filling your spirit like a spirit filler instead of a time killer. And when we fill our spirits, we don't feel badly afterwards. So when you overeat, you might feel good for a little while because it tastes good and it feels, you know, it's crunchy and creamy and smooth and, and it fills us up and it feels good. But then afterwards, we usually feel horrible. But when you fill your spirit or you fill yourself up in ways that have no negative after effects, you feel good while you're doing it and you feel good afterwards. Mm. So that's, you know, those are some of the, the chapters on, on how to fill up without feeling down. Yeah. If it's okay with you, we're going to take a quick break and then hear your thoughts on mindfulness when we come back. Absolutely. I'm Isis Ward, a body positive parent and kids apparel director at Nike. I'm also a proud patron of the Full Bloom podcast. In both my personal and professional life, I'm constantly striving to be more aware of the social and cultural influences in our kids' lives. The lessons I've learned from the Full Bloom podcast have helped me be a more conscious parent and a business leader. This is why I became an official patron and hope you will too. For less than the price of a latte, you too can support this incredible mission and keep the Full Bloom podcast going strong so that more of our children can fully bloom. As a gift for your patronage, the Full Bloom Project will send you their ABC Guide to Body Positive Parenting. This interactive resource is chock full of research and practical tips. It's been an invaluable resource to both my family and my team at Nike. To learn more about how you can claim your guide and join me in supporting this very important project, please visit fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And we're back. 
So tell us just a little bit more about why you recommend mindfulness and how you recommend it. Absolutely. Well, mindfulness is essentially being in the present moment. And I think when we live based on the past, when we live based on regrets or longing, or we live based on the future, what ifs, or uh, fantasizing about a, a, an amazing future we'll have if we just change our bodies, or we just change our friends, or we change ourselves, we really miss life. And all of that, those unkind mind thoughts or future fantasy, if we live too much in the past and the future, not only do we miss the present, but we really give ourselves a lot of ammo to need to self-soothe with extra food, if that's somebody's thing. And most of the people that are coming to me and reading my books, that's their thing. So it's so important to learn how to quiet our minds and how to learn that we are not every thought and that we don't have to believe every thought and that our thoughts are really pretty much recycled from the culture around us. And I really try to empower teens. I use the example of animal abuse just because those exist. Animal abuse and child abuse exist. It doesn't mean that they have to believe it. It doesn't mean that they have to jump on those bandwagons. And and in fact, they don't. And so that they can have a self that decides, you know what, I'm not going to agree with this stuff. I'm not going to agree that I have to be a certain way or look a certain way in order to be okay. I can question my mind. I can question the cultural thoughts that are being recycled and handed down. And when they can experience even the simplest moment or two moments of having a quiet mind, of being, you know, feeling the surface underneath them or hearing, listening to a song and not believing the thoughts that pop up, they can start to get a little taste of mindfulness and build on that. And I'm just thinking about, you know, parents listening and, you know, nodding, like hearing mm-hmm. what you're saying and nodding and then asking the question, but like, but how do I get my teen to even be interested in this, mm-hmm. you know, to even read the book or to hear what I'm saying? You know, I'm just wondering what you'd say to those parents who can see their teen struggling, but don't quite know how to get them willing to, even really just to talk about it first. Mm-hmm. Abs- absolutely. Well, it's, that's the biggest challenge to, because, you know, some, many teens tend to be closed and not open for input or our, especially adult suggestions. So, I think, first of all, we don't always have a customer. Sometimes if someone, if a teen is struggling enough and in enough pain or uh, in enough doing self-harm, even if it's with their dieting or overeating, we have to intervene. We have to say, I can't sit by and watch you hurt yourself this way. Even if you were doing drugs, I wouldn't sit by and watch. We, We have to get some help. And you can have a part in deciding what the help is. It could be we're going to read a book together. It could be we're going to go see a, a healthcare professional together. It could be you're, you can pick someone, you know, you can interview and I'll help you. But there has to be some kind of help if, if a teen is hurting themselves. I often encourage parents to look for their in using the language that the teen has used. So if a teen is binging, let's say, or sneak eating or restricting and overeating, and and the parent sees that they're struggling, 
But rather than go up to the teen and say, you know, I see that you're eating all the food, you know, there's no cookies and ice cream left and you keep eating it all, we need to get you help. I would see, is there a time when the teen has said to you as a parent, um, I hate my body or I can't fit in my jeans anymore or I'm not going to that swim party because I'm not going to wear a bathing suit in front of them. I would, at a different time, use their language. So, you know, you recently told me that you felt bad about your body, that you were hating your body or that you didn't want to go to the pool party because you didn't feel comfortable in a swimsuit. I wonder if, you know, we can get help with this, sweetie. This is not your fault. And um, there's a lot, a lot of things that we could do to get you help to feel better about your body. And I want to put out a few ideas and, and see if you'll pick one. They could write that to them so the teen could think about it. They could say it. But I would start by using the teen's language rather than your mm-hmm. own. I actually really like that. And I, it, I'm reflecting on the answer you gave us a little earlier when I asked you, why did you write this book about, you know, overeating and how you were honest and you said that it's a hook. It's like people are concerned about that. They're not necessarily concerned about having more body piece. And yet I, I thought about that just now because it's similar with a kid. Like, I think that could be more impactful if a child is saying, my complaint is that I don't fit into my jeans. I do think that could go a long way for a parent to say, I know you were concerned that you weren't fitting into your jeans. And the parent could know that the solution to the problem is not to help the kid fit into their jeans. Like that's not right. the solution. Right, and but that's the hook, the possible the hook, of getting a right. customer. Yeah, exactly. And and to say, I mean, how validating to be like, yeah, you are really upset about the fact that you don't feel comfortable in your body and that you don't fit into your jeans. And to both validate that and then hopefully a savvy parent then brings up a book like yours or goes to a provider that is going to help them with their body image, not necessarily exactly. literally changing their body and like know your hook and also know that you're not going to then take your kid for the solution they think they're going to get, but rather a much exactly. more effective one. Mindful. Mindful one. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, and deeper. Yeah. Absolutely. And the other thing that a parent, I think, can really do and is so important to do is to work on their own relationship with food and body image. And the kid's going to see that. I was recently working with a mom and she was very concerned about her kids eating. The kid wouldn't come and see me. She said, you know, why don't you come with me to my counselor? And I've been working with this mom for a long time on all these same issues. And I suggested to the mom that she just, without being too obvious, just start mentioning very casually what she's doing herself with food and body image. So like if they sit down at the table and the mom finishes her dinner and then p- brings out something for dessert that maybe the mom might say out loud, oh, I think I have room for like three bites of this and then I'll just be perfectly full, perfectly satisfied or just be totally comfortably satisfied or whatever words you know that she might use. Or um, I actually think I'm really, I'm full. I'm really had a perfect amount of food or I don't, I'm using the word perfect, but I really don't usually use that word. So I, I really feel comfortably satisfied. I think I'm going to save my dessert for a little later. Or um, I think I'd rather 
pass on the pasta and save room for those cookies I just made, or I think I'm just going to have, that's enough for me. And, uh, you know, things like that. So that the, the mom, or I'm learning this hunger and fullness scale at therapy. And I wonder if anybody else wants to try it with me. And you really, you notice where you are on the hunger and fullness mm-hmm. scale and you try to eat when you're about a three, so you're not really super duper hungry, but you're hungry and you try to stop when you're about a seven-ish, so you're not stuffed, but you're politely full. And I'm wondering if anybody else is game to try it with me. Sometimes, like in her case, the younger boy was, he's like, I'll try it. And the girl, she wasn't jumping on it, but she was listening. And I feel like it was much, it became more effective than the mom telling the daughter to do it. It's like, let the mom do it herself and just casually mention it on occasion, not too much. Yeah, and I, I do kind of want to add, if if I may, that I could see that being both really uh, like a helpful opener and also could potentially inadvertently send the message that it's not okay to, you know, eat the whole dessert or eat the pasta and the dessert. And I absolutely, you know, I, I only bring it up because it's a little nuance that sometimes gets overlooked. And so... I do think if a parent is into trying that, and I, I, I think that's actually very cool. I, I would like to see that happening at dinner tables. If you're going to say, hey, you know, I'm I'm noticing that I, I only really want a little bit of dessert or I'm going to save my dessert for later or even say, wow, this is so delicious and I'm really enjoying this, um, exactly. this whole piece or I'm enjoying having seconds tonight. Like just to model not just, polite fullness but also not just the not eating right exactly and I I just you know exactly I was using those examples because in this family they're all bingers Mm -hmm. and they struggle with just eating a lot and you know many portions and so that's what her work was maybe to listen to her body eat a little bit less if that felt right for her but in everybody's so different and every meal is different every snack is different absolutely Mm -hmm. and one of the things that um I wanted to hear more about from you was the work you do with mindfulness. I know that you do some work on Insight Timer, which is another tool aside from the book that I wanted you to to introduce to our listeners and just to talk with us about how how to help introduce mindfulness into our lives as parents and also our lives in parenting so that our kids can can be familiar with mindfulness from an early age. Absolutely. Well, practicing mindfulness ourselves and with our kids is so essential. And I think whether that's a formal meditation or whether that's just practicing being present, whether that's, you know, check out that butterfly or how about if we close our eyes for a second and just listen to the sounds we hear, listen to the birds on the walk and turn off our smartphones or whatever the case may be, just practicing being present even in, you know, moments throughout the day. It doesn't have to be, you know, 20 minutes in a lotus position, but it can be. And Insight Timer, do you do you know of Insight Timer? I do, yeah. I, one of the things that I do a lot with clients is, is um, work with mindfulness. And so a lot of them have found Insight Timer to be their preferred mindfulness app. Um, yes. So I don't know about you. Zoe. No, it was new to me. I'm familiar with some of the other ones, but I was, I was personally interested to hear a little more today. Yeah, I love Insight Timer, but it's, uh, it's one of the apps. There's several for meditations and uh, it's free, which is a nice, nice uh, perk. Uh, the meditations are free and there's so many things on there from talks to two-minute meditations to 20-minute meditations and on. There's so much. You can do a search for a certain topic 
And if you like the speaker or you like the meditation, you can bookmark it and save it. And then there's courses Hmm. um, on so many different topics. I have, not only do I have a lot of meditations up there, but I have a body image course up there and I have an anxiety relief course and I'm just finishing up a um, overeating course that's kind of for all ages, similar to my teen book, but for all ages. So the courses are great because they keep them fairly short. They're about 10 minutes a lesson, 10 to 15 minutes. And there are 10 lesson courses and 30 lesson courses. It's just a great tool for clients to use throughout the week. You could, you know, do a course together and they could, or they could listen to it and come in and tell you about it or do a meditation, a short one with them in session, or they could do it at home. It's just a really user-friendly app with a lot of resources. But I love being able to uh, personally put my stuff up there because I can reach people all over the world. And it's just a, a great resource for people. I'm going to definitely check it out. And we'll, we'll connect people through the show notes uh, yeah. with your particular courses and, of course, the app. So I, I'm mindful of time, and we're not going to let you go without asking you our, our signature question, which is if each parent listening to this podcast took away and did just one thing, one specific thing on the regular – What's the one thing you would recommend they do to help their child fully bloom? Okay, one thing. Mm -hmm. That's tricky for a gal like me. (laughs) Um, I'd have to say uh, stop fat chat. Fat chat is a term that I use to describe speaking negatively about your own or anyone else's body or food choices. And if, if parents could stop fat chat, stop speaking negatively about their own bodies, stop speaking negatively about anyone else's bodies, stop judging foods as good or bad or fattening or clean or that's what I would pick. I also um, actually on Insight Timer and on my uh, website, I have a talk that's called Six Ways We Can Stop the Bad Body Image Epidemic. So that is something parents could listen to and give that would give them very specific uh, tools. But stopping fat chat goes a long way for for the parents and for the kids. Yeah, I, we've heard that one a couple times mm-hmm. because it's so important. You know, that's that is definitely a signature answer mm-hmm. to this signature question. Yeah. And we so appreciate all the work that you're doing in this mm-hmm. space and your time today to share with our listeners your insight into this world and how to support their kids and teens through these challenging times, mm-hmm. through this negative, negative body, body image, image epidemic. epidemic. Yes, yes. Well, thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Leslie, I want to come back to this topic of mindfulness. We started talking about it with Andrea, and I know she's done a lot of work with it. And I know you do a lot of work with mindfulness in your practice. And I didn't feel fully satisfied. I want us to talk a little bit more about mindfulness. I wonder if, like, can you share a little bit about how you teach it in your practice? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've been working with mindfulness in my practice since the beginning, really, because I was trained in this this type of treatment called dialectical behavioral therapy, which I think we profiled a little bit of like some communication strategies on one of our podcasts in the summer series. But in this 
type of treatment, which I've been doing really since the beginning of working in the, in the field outside of graduate school, there's a module on teaching mindfulness skills. And really the whole treatment is based in mindfulness itself. So it's always been part of my work with clients, although I do tend to use manualized based treatments, but it kind of comes through. And I start usually by teaching them about the what and the how skills of mindfulness, observing and describing and participating. Um, So really building awareness of one's thoughts and behaviors and really doing so from a non-judgmental stance. And usually that process creates awareness of, of a judgmental stance. All of these ways to teach mindfulness in my practice, I feel like it's just so essential for clients to see where their weight bias and fat phobia and kind of thin ideal, thin ideal internalizations are, how they live, how this over-evaluation of weight and shape exists. And then from there, we can kind of create change. We can accept that those thoughts are there and those behaviors are there and we can really create change or a return to kind of more normal eating patterns and more compassionate ways of relating to themselves. It's harder to teach mindfulness in word form. Um, to kids, it, it needs to come a much simpler fashion. Um, but I do work, when I work with kids, use a lot of mindfulness skills that they start to get a sense of being able to notice what's going on for them in a new way and maybe put words to it, which is kind of that observe, those observe and describe skills, like notice it first and then be able to put words to it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to separate those two things out. I mean, mindfulness is so, I find it's very hard <laughs> to do in my own life. And, you know, I know we're trying to talk a little bit today about how to kind of bring that into our children's lives. But of course, it all starts with us. And I do like that there are so many apps out there and that mindfulness has become so, you know, recently popularized. And at the same time, I just have a lot of compassion for parents who are, you know, busy and running around and like can't quite even find the time to sort of sit and observe and describe for two minutes or notice their breath. So on one hand, I I feel like I could relate to the parents that are like, yeah, that sounds great. I just can't find the time to do it. Yeah, you know, I was reading one of Ellen Satter's books yesterday, I think, and it kind of reminded me, you know, Ellen Satter is so much about the family meal, not what's in the family meal, but actually just getting a meal on the table and being there with the family um, and that is a perfect place to kill two birds with one stone, you know, like getting to just really practice what's happening. And there's all kinds of fun little games that you can play that are really actually just mindfulness awareness games. There's a real opportunity there. So that might be something that instead of finding extra time, we can just as families find that time and sit together at the table and let the kids do their job of eating and the parents do their job of 
feeding of, of putting food on the table. And then in that process, it can be fun and you guys can use mindfulness skill games, you know, in that moment, it might be something that works really nicely for families. I think another quick thing, even though I just got through saying, I don't have time for mindfulness. One of the things that I, I think is uh, fun to do and helpful is to kind of get your kids aware of like how crunchy their food is or how sweet it is or like the texture. Um, if you bake something, sometimes I would like to say, like, do you taste the, like the butter in the cookie? Like, do you think you can taste the brown sugar, like tasting the ingredients before we make them? And in a way, it's important to notice that those are little mindfulness exercises too, just to become really aware of your senses. And maybe like me, we're practicing more mindfulness than we thought. <laughs> Some of us out there. Yeah. I mean, I think in, in closing, like, it's something to be playful with, to not take too seriously, to not be judgmental about the process, but to find a way to build it into your world and build out of your world that kind of fat talk or body shaming conversation. If we can take a little bit of that out, we might have a little more room also to add some of this stuff in. Yeah, well said. All right, so I think that's our show. That's our show. We would love to hear any reactions or questions that came up for you during this episode, so please send us an email at info at fullbloomproject.com. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would really appreciate you leaving us a rating or review on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And please consider becoming a patron of our podcast by visiting fullbloomproject.com slash Patreon so that we can continue to produce and deliver this content to you. Thank you all for listening and remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom. Mm-hmm.